0: You're listening to ReachMD, XM, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskell, presented by the National Lipid Association.
1: What are the biochemical patterns that determine who will fall prey to cardiovascular disease and who will escape unscathed? I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. Christy Ballantyne, Director of the Center for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention at Methodist DeBakey Heart Center, and also the Chief of the Section of Atherosclerosis and Vascular Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Ballantyne, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. So I've read that you've been quoted as saying that we are in a totally new era in atherosclerosis. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, I think it's in a very exciting time. If you take a look back, I was thinking, I finished medical school in 1982, 25 years ago, and if we look at the way that we approach the treatment of this disease compared to when I finished medical school, it is really revolutionary. Our concepts of not only how you treat an acute event, but what do you do afterwards and how do you assess risk, the way that we use screening tests. It's changed completely.
1: 25 years ago, what were we doing, and what part of that have we totally abandoned?
0: So 25 years ago, we weren't doing much. If anybody can remember what the last slip show when I started my internship, I was at Parkland at uh, UT Southwestern. They would put a a star if your total cholesterol was over 300. That was high. Our concept of uh, blood pressure, it was age plus 100. So if you were 75 years, as long as your systolic was Not over 175, you were okay. And our concept for glucose control. So, I mean, those are the ones, but it was even more interesting. We didn't even routinely measure HDL cholesterol. And that was when the guidelines came out in 1988. They were still focusing on total cholesterol. So that was the first set of guidelines. So it's really very interesting if you take a look at how our concept for screening has changed. And obviously part of that's because we didn't have many therapies.
1: Now 25 years later, I mean we've got a an array of things we can order. We've got CRP, LP plaque, hsCRP. So it's confusing to general internists and family practitioners which one we should be getting as a as a screening test.
0: So we start off with the fundamentals and everybody should get a lipid profile. And there's even some confusion in regards to that. A lipid profile is what's recommended for all adults; should be done annually. If you're seeing children with family histories, you should also be getting a lipid profile, particularly if there's a history of familial hypercholesterolemia. Now, remember with the lipid profile, what is measured is the total cholesterol, and HDL cholesterol, and triglycerides, and typically one gets a calculated LDL cholesterol. If you don't have a high triglyceride, there's no need to also get a direct LDL. And so that's still sometimes you see people in some of the labs trying to kind of push for direct LDL cholesterol. In general, this test is not needed very often. So start off with a lipid profile. And the other ones that you need for laboratory tests are going to be a glucose in terms of, so diabetes and lipids or something in, the the glucose in certain types of patients, as you know, where you're more concerned about risk for diabetes.
1: When do you start worrying about getting a direct LDL? How high do the triglycerides need to be to kind of screw up that equation?
0: Well, if your triglycerides are over 400, you cannot calculate the LDL cholesterol uh, accurately. However, you can calculate the non-HDL cholesterol and we have some numbers that we use for non HDL cholesterol. Unfortunately, this concept has been very slow to catch on, and I think it's because it's not printed on the lab slip. But if you simply take the HDL cholesterol, which we know is in the protective lipoprotein HDL, and you subtract that from the total cholesterol, everything else is bad. And we tell our patients that the LDL cholesterol is the bad cholesterol. It should really be the non-HDL cholesterol is the bad cholesterol. And you, with that number, you can really do most of your business without even ordering a direct LDL. And we have targets for non-HDL cholesterol.
1: It's a poor man's way of doing an ApoB.
0: It is, that is exactly right. It's the, it's the poor man's way for assessing the total amount of atherogenic cholesterol. Whereas ApoB, there's one molecule of ApoB per particle tells you about the total number of atherogenic particles.
1: So for the people who can't really calculate out there, let's say they have an LDL goal of 100, what should their non-HDL goal be?
0: You simply add 30 points. So if you think someone's LDL target should be 100, their non-HDL should be less than 130. If you think their their LDL should be less than 70, their non-HDL should be less than 100. And what we have found is, is that in particular, after using statin therapy, there's a very high correlation between the levels of non-HDL cholesterol and ApoB. And there's been some data that's come out, particularly in certain groups like women. Non-HDL cholesterol is probably a better predictor of risk than just LDL because it incorporates all of the atherogenic triglyceride-rich lipoproteins.
1: Every week, I get approached by somebody from all the Fancy Labs, the Berkeley Lab, NMR, and uh, Atherotech, and I'm wondering if there's really any place in clinical medicine for doing advanced testing, or should that really just stay in the research labs? Well,
0: I think there is a role for clinical testing, but let's kind of go over first of all. So, where do we use these numbers? We use the lipids in context of the of the of that patient profile. So, if you have a 21-year-old woman whose LDL cholesterol is 145 and her HDL is 70. She has a high total cholesterol, a perfect blood pressure, perfect glucose, no family history. You could look in the Framingham risk equation if you put plug those numbers in. She's very low risk. Ordering one of these other tests is really not going to be very helpful. She'll still be low risk. So when you have very low risk, the extra tests don't help. Likewise, if I have somebody who's you know, a 60-year-old man who's already infarcted, and I'm seeing him after his stint, you know, I have a pretty good idea of what that person's risk is. So in terms of the concept of risk assessment, where we're really saying that these tests come in are people who are what we would call intermediate risk. So they're kind of borderline, and, you know, what you might say clinically is, you're concerned, but you're not really sure how aggressive to be.
1: If you've just joined us, you're listening to REACH MD, XM 157 the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm talking today with Dr. Christy Ballantyne, director of the Center for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention at Methodist DeBakey Heart Center. Dr. Ballantyne, let's let's talk about that 21-year-old woman again, and let's assume she d- did have a positive family history. Would you then perhaps go a little further and maybe do an LP little A on her?
0: So when I see positive family histories, the test that I think is the most informative one is LP little A, lipoprotein little A. Now it's confusing. That's not to be confused with PLA 2 Lipoprotein-associated phospholipase A2. So what is this lipoprotein? You take the ApoB molecule, hook onto it Apo little A, and we call that lipoprotein little a. Ninety percent of the levels are determined by hereditary. So when anyone has a bad family history, I think it's worthwhile at least checking once the level of LP little a. Now the confusing thing for the clinician is there are three fairly widely utilized assays. One measured LP LPLA mass, and the units were typically high, was over 30 milligrams per deciliter. A second one ends up looking at the molarity. We're using a different antibody that's specific to an epitope that's not in the Kringle repeat. I hate to get technical there, but that's why you're getting it in millimoles. Quest is using this, and it's the world's biggest lab. It's a different number. So now you're talking about 70 being the normal, the cut point, and the other one is, for example, in the VAP profile, you're looking at a cholesterol content in a subfraction, which is felt to be lipoprotein delay, and they have 10 as their cut point. So, you know, this is a confusing area. Somebody comes in and their values are all over the place.
1: So you've got to be consistent in terms of committing to one lab.
0: Probably the state-of-the-art test is the one that looks at molarity. But that's not offered by many of the laboratories. But that's the NIH consensus has kind of come out as saying that that's that may be the optimal test.
1: And that again is offered by Quest, and the magic number is seventy. So you'd like to be below seventy.
0: So if somebody comes in and you see they have a high level, it's probably hereditary, and I think it's useful because now for that individual. But you know, I follow. I've been following some of these my patients for twenty years. Somebody has kids or they have a brother or sister, and now we also say, well, gee, your brother should get checked, your sister should get checked. We know this runs in the family. We're doing some very interesting genetics on this right now. There's a fairly common genetic polymorphism that can make your levels three times as high.
1: So let's say she has this woman has a high LPA. Are you going to automatically... Treat her with something to lower her LPA.
0: I probably wouldn't at that time, but what I will end up doing, if her LDL was 190, then I, probably, then I would treat her. And I'd really look at that family history, how bad it was. And, and then if so if it's a younger man and I see a sky-high LPA with a bad family history, I tend up moving on to therapy. Now, with women, why do we not? Remember, statins are not approved during pregnancy. Chances are, if you just look statistically, the odds of a pregnancy are much higher than the odds for any event over the next 10 years. So it's a, it's a special situation.
1: Would you consider using niacin in someone who has a normal LDL and is not going to be getting pregnant?
0: For that particular individual, if unless it's a really terrible history, probably not still. Once again, niacin has never been proved during pregnancy. None of them have been tested. So, it's been around a long time, but I don't think that we have enough data. And we'd, we'd like to get some more data, and we will out of the AIM high and some other studies about the additive effects of niacin alone. But in this population, I tend to be fairly conservative. As I said, as we throw in more risk and we get into higher numbers, if it's like, if, for example, if they're an FH, type number, then then I'm going to jump in and we're going to treat it. and then we'll have to talk about family planning. But I start with a statin.
1: Can we move on to the war between CRP and LP plaque? Can you kind of compare and contrast the two?
0: They're measuring two very different things. C-reactive protein is an acute phase reactant. Most of this is maybe, is probably synthesized by the liver. It's made in other, uh, it can be made in the vascular wall, but you really have quite high levels of C-reactive protein that we measure in the circulation. So, You're getting very different information. If you take a look at LPPLA2, lipoprotein-associated phospholipase A2, this is an enzyme that's secreted by primarily white blood cells. It is bound and transported primarily to low-density lipoproteins, uh, about 80% there. And if you look at the correlation, they're not giving the same information at all. In general, we're involved with a large meta-analysis of 30 epidemiological studies, and the ones that have measured both The correlation, the R value is between 0.04 and 0.06. The R squared would be that we look at incredibly small. So they really, you can't predict one from the other test. CRP is an acute phase reactant. LPPLA2 is an enzyme on LDL. Our theory is this goes into the vessel wall and could be a risk factor. And it also might be reflecting what's coming out of the vessel wall.
1: On that note, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Christy Ballantyne. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit
0: www.lipid.org. ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals.